And the bubblegum flavoring came in a like a five gallon industrial sized container that had a very special lid on it that locked in place because if that stuff got out, the smell of bubblegum would not get out of anything. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today, Matt's talking to Daniela Galarza, a name familiar to many longtime taste readers. Daniela started her career working as a pastry chef, having spent time working in the kitchens of David Burke and also working as a private chef and in recipe development at a bakery in Los Angeles. And that's where Daniela's writing career begins. After a friend tipped her off to an unpaid internship at Eater LA, she entered the world of food journalism and has remained a fixture ever since, having worked as an editor at Eater and a freelance writer. She's written several memorable baking stories for taste and for the past year and a half has written a four-day-a-week column for the Washington Post food section, which is one of my favorite morning reads. We talk about what makes a great recipe, what makes a great newsletter, and some of her past taste work, including a memorable profile of the great pastry chef Claudia Fleming. Here's Matt talking with Daniela. Daniela Galarza, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Oh, it's good to see you face to face. It's been a couple years, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. It almost feels like it's hard to tell how long, how, like time wise, like how much time has passed, right? I know. It's really hard. <laughs> and, and I feel like you've moved around. Um, you know, you, you lived here for so long and then now you work for The Washington Post. And we'll get into that. But I really first wanted to get a little bit of your story because it's cool. You You have this long journalism career, but going back even further, you were a professional Chef, a, a cook. Talk, talk, talk about some of your pro jobs. Yeah, I started cooking when I was in college uh, as a way to help pay the bills, but also because I was obsessed with restaurant work and just wanted to go and become a chef. And um, after that, went to culinary school, worked in New York. Um, I worked for David Burke and Michael White and then hmm. moved to L.A., got recruited at a bakery, a wholesale bakery in L.A. that wanted me to do some product development. And I had never thought to do that. I also had become one of those people that's obsessed with New York and never wanted to leave the city. But um, they convinced me to go. And as sort of like part of that job, I got to go to Paris to study bread. And that was really great, too. Say it. Wow. Yeah. That Paris. Was, I know. Which you write about on ta- you've written about on taste. And I know you're a big uh, fan of Paris and you know the city quite well. Uh, David Burke. Let's go back to that one. <laughs> My gosh. David Burke pastry, early 2000s. Definitely groundbreaking. What was your time like there? It was it was crazy. This was, um, you know, well before anyone started talking about what it was like to work in a restaurant kitchen. But actually, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential had come out, and I read that. Uh, it was a page-turner for me, and I lived that. That was sort of how the life was. Um, but David Burke is an incredible powerhouse and incredibly incredibly creative and he taught me so much when I was there also connected me with so many chefs that he worked with in France and so I owe a lot to him um such a fan I think when you work in the restaurant industry and you work for people long enough you really understand loyalty and I, I love that about that business that really loyalty exists in a lot of different forms and ways and but I also think everyone should spend some time working in the service industry even if you're not in the food business like it teaches you a lot about how how to hustle and 
how to treat people. Absolutely. And you mentioned Tony Bourdain. And I think, you know, he was one of the most fiercely loyal individuals in all of like the food world. And it's it is an interesting part of the job is loyalty. David Burke, did you end up making a few of those cake lollipops that he's famous for? (laughs) (laughs) By the time I got there, believe it or not, David Burke had automated that whole system. And they were made at a wholesaler, and we just put them on (laughs) the lollipop trees. But I did make that bubblegum whipped cream that they were served with. And the bubblegum flavoring came in a a five-gallon industrial-sized container that had a very special lid on it that locked in place because if that stuff got out the <laughs> smell of bubblegum would not get out of anything wow. <laughs> it was and very intense yeah intense and just the creativity there was intense too and if you've ever had anything whimsical in pastry like a cake lollipop i feel david burke oh yeah is, he is was one to credit Absolutely. Cake lollipops, all kinds of puns in desserts. One of his early creations was opera in the park. And so it was a slice of opera cake with a chocolate bench on top and a little lamppost, chocolate lamppost. And so I made all of those. And I don't know if you've talked to Sarah Carey, who's now Martha Stewart, but we actually connected recently and she worked for him as well. And so we sort of commiserated about making all of those chocolate lo- cho- <laughs> with the chocolate park benches, which were a lot of work. <laughs> really fun, fun stuff with David Burke. Yeah. So you write often on your social platforms about ordering the full menu for dessert. And I, I have to ask about this practice because it's so smart. And and my first question is, is what draws you to plated desserts and ordering the entire menu? Yeah, I mean, I think I can I can credit Burke for some of that too. Fortunately, he was the first job, that was the first job I worked at in pastry in New York City. And I think because he was so well known for a lot of his desserts, people always ordered dessert. And so the dessert sales at David Burke were close to 90%. I mean, everybody walked out of there, you know, nobody walked out of there without getting a dessert. And I didn't realize how lucky I was that the average dessert sales in New York City, I think, hover around 30%. And so pastry chefs aren't as appreciated and aren't seen as as necessary as savory chefs. And I can understand the reasoning behind that from a, from, you know, a straight business financial perspective. But as a former pastry chef, I totally sympathize with all of these people who grew up loving pastry and and wanting to work in this industry. And then, you know, as a pastry chef or, or even a pastry cook, you're the last person in the kitchen at the end of the night because you're waiting for those last tables, waiting yeah. to see if they're going to order dessert. And it's crushing when they don't order dessert, when you've been waiting around for an hour for them to finish their entrees. And then they just say, no, we're too full. And so I like to, you know, give a shout out to them. But when I was at uh, David Burke and Donatella in the early aughts, um, something he always used to do was called the dessert storm. And when he had a table that he really liked or friends of his, he would come in in the kitchen and flicker the lights on and off and say, dessert storm, fire dessert storm for table 80 or whatever. And um, we knew we had to flyer the whole menu. The whole menu, ordering the full menu. And I love that the, the, I, some people call it getting crushed with, with desserts um, <laughs> as well. And how do you strategize as like somebody who's going to just order the menu? You've got like maybe two or three. You've got gelato or ice creams. You've got a couple cookies. And then you've got like four to six to eight plated desserts. It's just you maybe solo or with another person. How do you do this? How does this work? Yeah, it, it depends on the restaurant. You know, more casual places, I'll just tell them to bring it all at once. I like the cr- nice. I, I just like love that crush of like having everything on the yeah. table. I also love sort of the procession of seeing a couple of waiters have to carry all of these plates of dessert out and people sort of turn their heads because who ordered all that dessert right and I think it's fun and it's sort of like a little advertising for the pastry crew I hope but at some at other restaurants 
you know, especially if there's a pastry team, the servers are kind of aware of this possibly happening. And so they'll, it, it's almost like a cheese plate. Well, you'll get sort of the lighter things at first. Maybe you'll get like the lemon panna cotta and then maybe some of the fruit desserts like a crumble or a pie or a tart. And then you'll move towards the heavier or the more strongly flavored things that have maybe coffee or chocolate in them. I love that strategy. Can we talk about a little bit about Pichayong and Pong? Because I know I had him on the podcast uh, early on in the 40s or 50s episodes. Check it out, listener. Uh, And he used to do Pong, which was a tasting menu for dessert. So why don't we have more of these places like Pong? I don't know. I I wish we did. Um, Pichet is so great. I, I just, yeah, I think he's just an incredible creative force. And I respect his taste and in, in, in flavor. I, I wish th- places like that. I mean, there were a few places like that in like oh, 2003, yeah, 2004, 2005, Room for Dessert. Um, Taylor, I think, was one of them. Yes. Remember that? Um, and I frequented them. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I guess, I guess not enough people did. I mean, rents in New York are expensive. I, I, I get that. But I think... You know, maybe that's something that'll come back. We'll see. I'd love to see it. Thank you for saying uh, Taylor. I think Taylor was a really wonderful restaurant and had some of the best desserts I've ever had in my life there. And mm-hmm. yeah, maybe it will come back. I think the tasting menu for desserts would be fun. Um, sorry, we, we really dwell on that one, but I, I it's just your your passion and, and intellect and knowledge about it is is, is really cool. Could talk about it all day. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let's talk about your transition to writing because you, you had had this career in pastry and in cooking, but then you started working, um, you worked at Eater, you now at the Washington Post, you've held other jobs, you've written for Taste. How did you make that transition? Yeah, so I was working at the bakery in LA doing product development and then the recession hit, recession of 20, 2008, 2009. And the baker kind of went under. We almost all got laid off. And it was a really hard time in my life. I had never felt like such a failure before. Um, But it also woke me up to the fact that desserts and pastry and bread, even, you know, artisanal bread, handmade, like, like true, like sourdough bread, all of that is still seen as sort of a luxury item instead of an everyday necessity. And I totally sympathize with people who can't afford it. Some of that stuff costs a lot of money, and it's because it is very labor-intensive. So I connected with a lot of the people that I had been selling, helping sell bread to and and, and worked together with, and I ended up working at the cheese store of Beverly, Beverly Hills for a little while, and I was doing a lot of odd jobs. I was selling things at farmer's markets for makers. I was working with people that were private chefs, um, and then... A friend of mine told me about Eater, and and he said, uh, "Well, you love restaurants, and you you know you love restaurants and food more than anyone I know. Eater is looking for an intern. You should apply." Mm. And this was the unpaid days. Eater of LA. Eater LA. Yeah. And and I applied, and somehow I got the job. Wow. Um, it wasn't it was an unpaid job, and I I remember we were a real scrappy team, mm-hmm. but it was fun, and and I. Broke some stories for them. Yeah, and you got the bug. I bet. I got, yeah, that yeah. was that was sort of a fun time. And then at some point, Ellie Weekly called or or they emailed me and said, you know, we really like your stuff. And you know, they basically said, we'll pay you. They thought I was getting paid, and so then I went back to Eater and I said, so I gotta go because I'm gonna get paid yeah, right? for this now. I'm actually make some money for my work. Right, and then Eater started paying me. Okay, and then you ended up you were on staff there, right, at Eater. I was so I was I was part time for a long time at yeah. Eater LA. 
And that's when I started working um, as a private chef, too. Oh, right on. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the days of private chefing. <laughs> yeah. My gosh. Well, that's a whole nother. I'm sure there was signatures involved with NDAs. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to go into that. But I, I want to talk a little bit about your journalism because we worked together on a lot of stories, especially in the early days of Taste, uh, 2017, 2018. Uh, and it was just such an amazing collaboration. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I had a couple of stories in mind uh, that were interesting in revisiting. Uh, one was more the one of the last stories you wrote, which was about the Bosque cheesecake, which is now very widely known as the burnt cheesecake. I feel like you and I we were onto something a little early there. And what has happened since that story about the burnt cheesecake? <laughs> I'm, I mean, I think it's become a trend. I'm seeing yeah. it everywhere now. I'm seeing it coast to coast. Uh, there's been a number of trend stories about it. And uh, people are still making it at home. So that's great. What What is it exactly? How do you describe it? So it's an American – I mean, it's a cheesecake, but it was developed by this, this uh, pinchas place called La Vina in San Sebastian, Spain. And they have an oven that's sort of like a bread oven. And when they put their cheesecakes in there, it's pretty hot. And so it, it, it cooks them on the outside very, very quickly and burns the top of them to this yeah. like really deep caramelized, almost charred. And the inside stays very pillowy and underdone and moussey. Um, and there's no crust on it, uh, like unlike the sort of like a Junior's cheesecake or New York cheesecake. But it has a, like a, a complexity of flavor that I think you don't get from other types of cheesecake, and it's just really good. Definitely not, and I think there's a visual trick there too, and we see contrasting color and contrasting texture as well. Mm-hmm. But the color contrast is such a thing where you have actually a burned or charred outer layer. Sometimes the paper is charred. Mm-hmm. You scoop in, you got this very light contrasting filling essentially yeah it's cool and and you really it did take off as a trend another story uh, i wanted to talk about was your profile of claudia fleming uh and and kind of the reprinting of her book the last course i know that book was important to you i wanted to hear about that. it really was i i think i bought it at the strand in 2004 or five and i looked at it every day for at least a couple of years i was so impressed with her pairings of flavor and with the way she approached making dessert and how she pulled inspiration from all kinds of places and and yet nothing was too precious or like overly wrought and um i used to tell everybody about that book and then i remember i was in la at some point and a friend of mine borrowed it and then we lost touch and I never got the book back. And I then know. I just, I mean, but all that time I just thought, oh, I'll just order another copy. And then it was out of print. It was out of print for years. And I saw that some copies were going on eBay for $200. It was a real thing for a while. Eventually got back in touch with that friend and got my <laughs> book back, thankfully. But then I heard that Claudia was, was going to re put that book out again and that was exciting I love that book and it's now widely available in, re- in reprint um, and it's called The Last Course it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's excellent uh, I wanted to segue to your work at the Washington Post so you've been working at the Washington Post for over a year now I believe maybe yeah. two years is that right no it's a year and a couple months yeah and you are a staff writer there and you run and operate and, and, and really curate and write and all the words about that, all the words because you do all the words um, for eat voraciously I uh, really love it. I, 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 wrote, I think the first or second one you did, I was like, this is great. You're on to something. So you should check it out. We're going to link to it in the show notes and subscribe. So tell us about this newsletter that comes out four times 
a week. How do you stay inspired to write four times a week about cooking? That's a great question. And, you know, I think what I'll say is I was listening to Dora Greenspan. She was on she was on a podcast recently and I someone was asking her about how she keeps writing cookbooks. And she said she used to work with Julia Child and. She said, once I was at lunch with Julia, and Julia just sat down and said, you know what? We're lucky. And Dory was like, what, what could Julia be talking about? Are we lucky to be at this restaurant? Am I, I mean, obviously, I'm lucky to be working with Julia, but what is Julia talking about? You know. And then finally, Julia elaborates, and she says, no, we're lucky because we work in food, and we're always going to be learning. That means we have a lifetime of learning ahead. And I think that's so true. I think that it's just the case in food, and it's probably true in a lot of fields, particularly the creative ones, but... There's always going to be people creating in this field. There's always going to be a lot of different angles to approach. And there's always going to be a history and context with food. And I think there's all of those things are a way to approach it. And so, yeah, I feel really lucky that I get to work on this. I share that sentiment with you fully. I, I think writing about food is one of the, the greatest uh, pleasures and, and privileges. Uh, and being able to learn from the the world uh, in front of us the, the the cookbooks that come out that we publish here and all the the chefs we get to talk to and I wanted to get into um, what the the newsletter kind of covers because you're you're writing four times a week to this wide audience and uh, oftentimes I would say every time there's a recipe there are you developing these recipes are you taking them from cookbooks like how does that work for you yeah, no, that's a great question. And I want to clear up that it's a free newsletter. It's available to anyone, even if they're not subscribers to The Washington Post. Um, you don't have to be a subscriber. You can sign up. And you don't have to be an Amazon subscriber. <laughs> you don't have to be. Fine. I'm not an Amazon subscriber, so you don't have to be an Amazon subscriber. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> no, it's fine. I think it's fun. So it comes out Monday through Thursday. And the idea for the newsletter actually wasn't mine. It was um, senior features editor Liz Seymour's idea. She approached the then managing editor of The Post and said, you know, this was before the pandemic also, and said, you know what I really think we need? I, I want someone to tell me what to make for dinner every day. You know, I've got two kids. I'm busy. I don't have time to think about this. I don't have time to flip through cookbooks. I just want an email every day that gives me an easy recipe that I can make for dinner and be done with it. And I can pick up the ingredients on the way home from work, but maybe it's mostly pantry-friendly recipes. And so she got that approved and they approached me and I interviewed and then the pandemic hit and all the interviews were paused. Mm -hmm. um, and then a few months later, we got the ball rolling again. And I, and I was really, really excited when they offered me the job. And then I got to shape it from there. And I had this idea, you know, I kept I wanted to really read into the message, the message that I think comes across when you use the word voraciously. I think it's an enthusiastic word. It's about enthusiasm and it's about curiosity and it's about vigor and mm -hmm. kind of an underlying belief that that you're hungry for the world. And I also think that that's how I want to cook and live um, every day, too. And so. On a practical level, let's see, Monday through Wednesday's recipes are from our archives. Mm -hmm. And they might be from a chef or a restaurant or a food recipe developer or cookbook. And I always give credit and sometimes try to interview them again and refresh all of that. And then the Thursday recipe is a new one from me. Sometimes I'm adapting a recipe from a cookbook because I love cookbooks just like you. And I think the goal, I, I mean, I'm trying to sort of stretch people's idea of what they can make on a weeknight. I think a lot of people really want something easy. And certainly some of my recipes are, you know, six ingredients done in 20 minutes. And that's, I sometimes I really want that too. Sometimes all I eat is scrambled eggs and rice for dinner. But 
I I think sometimes if you know if people are feeling a little bit more ambitious, they might find something else that, to make for dinner too. Absolutely agree. I, I've cooked several of the recipes. I, I wanted to call out this quote that you tweeted um, from a reader, and it's really fun. It's, I like your column so much, I read it aloud to my husband who also cooks. I love that. I know. It, was, it really, that was really sweet. I've gotten a, a number of emails, and in fact, I'm pen pals with several people now who we write on a weekly basis. They they just tell me what they've made or nice. what they've gotten from their garden. Um, and I think it reminds me of the early days of blogging, I'll be honest. I, I there are still blogs I read that I started reading in the late 90s, and I love I love the personal connection you have. I feel like I have with some of those people where it's like you get to know them on a, on a different sort of level, and you either identify with them or not, um, but I think people also like that regularity. They like this, like, something they can look forward to, something, you know, maybe they won't always want to make that recipe that night, and that's fine, but maybe they'll save it for later, or maybe they're just, like, learning something new. Yeah, we, we publish uh, newsletters ourselves, and uh, we, Anna and I, write often in these newsletters, and we feel the same way with our readers. We get we get letters often, and to refresh, uh, to plug, we, we do a Monday chef interview, we do a Wednesday cooking interview, and then Friday is kind of our roundup of stories and recipes from the week. And I feel the same way about early blogging. When we read, I just wrote the one for, for tomorrow, just earlier today, and I feel like it's early blogging. It's kind of off the dome. It's usually in first person, and it connects in a way that like a reported story wouldn't. And right. we get the feedback, right, from the listener, from the Absolutely. reader. Absolutely. And it's a little bit more personal as a newsletter, yeah. too. It's almost like, like I used to, I mean, when I have time, I still like to write really long emails to my friends. So I think of this in the same vein, too. Talk about a couple of the recipes in the past few months that resonated uh, with your readers. Do you have a, do you have a way of, of kind of measuring success or is it just like you get a lot of letters and this one worked out well? Like what are a few of the, the big hits? I, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's sort of evenly dispersed across the board. I think people really like it when it's an adaptable recipe. So I recently wrote about it, uh, developed a recipe for Greek chicken or cauliflower. And essentially everything about the recipe is the same, except you can use quartered chicken legs or you can use a quartered whole cauliflower. And otherwise hmm. the seasonings How and the fun. cook time, everything about it is exactly the same. So, I, yeah, I, I, I like to make it adaptable, and I personally have been eating less meat at home and cooking less meat at home, and so it happens that a lot of the recipes are very vegetarian or vegan-friendly, and I think people like that too. Just last week or maybe the week before, I did a an acorn squash soup recipe that was just six ingredients, and a lot of people made that because it was only six ingredients mm-hmm. and took half an hour, and people love, love those quick recipes. But also, you know, it's squash soup, like... Always looking for like a new angle into it, and this one had a little bit of miso and maple, and fun. So it was, yeah, it was just good. And easy. Nice, nice base there. I, I love this idea. Back to the cauliflower or chicken. I feel like big cauliflower or big chicken would could could get involved in this book. That's cauliflower or chicken. I love that. It's so smart. <laughs> Thanks. Let's talk about some of the the cookbooks that have inspired you. I, you know, you mentioned your love of cookbooks, and and it's it's obvious in working with you. When we talk about stories, you're always referencing cookbooks, new and old. And I really wanted to have you in here to talk about some of your favorite recent cookbooks. So what are a few that you've maybe cooked from or just enjoyed reading? Sure. This isn't super new. I think it came out last year, but Coconut Ensemble by Laura Lee. I'm still working my way through it, but I am learning so much. And I 
haven't hit a recipe I haven't liked yet. It, everything's so good. Um, it's a it's a great book. We've I think we've we've written a little bit about it, but we've never had Laura on the podcast, and I'd like to do yeah, that eventually. You, 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 yeah, I read. I th- so cool. I can't remember if it was Anna or or who wrote about the sambal in that book, but it was just so smart. Mm-hmm. Let's see. More recently, Mooncakes and Milk Bread by Christina Cho. Such a smart book. I feel like I've been waiting a decade for this. Yeah, and that's about the Chinese bakery experience and the yeah. way that Chinese bakeries have a unique way with, uh, I guess, in in presenting pastry, but also, I guess, the the gist I got from it was, like, Chinese pastry is quite underrated, right, from, like, especially, obviously, outside of the Chinese-American experience. It's just an underrated place, and it's got incredible pastry. Yeah, I, I came, I mean, I studied in France, and when I was going to culinary school, I was just talking to somebody about this earlier today. When I was going to culinary school, it was everything was about France. It was like mm-hmm. that was the way you learned how to cook. And even to the extent that like when I then would make a recipe from Puerto Rico or Iran, I would think, oh, I've got to like brown the onions to this extent because that's how the French would do it. Or like that's the only technique. And I used to think about that a lot with pastry, especially after I spent some time in Mexico City, because they don't, you know, there are. There are other techniques, and I think that there's something still lingering in the culinary industry about how France is like the only fr- French cooking is the one that has categorized these techniques, and therefore those are the end all be all techniques. But as you know, as Christina's book shows, like there are incredible pastry techniques in China. Think of like wagashi in Japan, like that's a whole other technique. And I, I there's just so much that's underexplored in pastry across the world that I think they're. There's just so many books coming. Is there one more book that you uh, that you're thinking about right now that you've cooked from? I, can I only pick one? That's okay, you can hard. do a couple more. Let's okay. do two more. All right, we're, we're cool. We can we can. We can make I haven't work. cooked for me yet, but I've been reading Bryant Terry's Black Food. Yeah. Because I think it's going to be a genre defining book, and I think it's going to herald a whole new era of cookbooks about the Black food experience that are going to, you know, I think in a good way, like segue away from soul food cooking, which I think a oh lot of gosh, people, of right? There, there's just this this knee-jerk reaction that black food is soul food, and it, that's not the only answer. It's so reflexive food. in our culture, and I'm glad you brought that up. That book is tremendous. I just wrote a piece about the sweet potatoes that run as a thread through the through the book, and mm-hmm. Bryant um, deserves a lot of credit for pulling together, you know, 40, 50 contributors to really uh, crystallize the black food experience, um, both in America and abroad, uh, I love that book. I hope you're right. I hope it does change the way books are are edited and assigned. So yeah, good on you for calling that one out. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I'm gonna go with Treasures of the Mexican Table um, by Patty Anich. Oh yeah. Sure. Her books. I mean, her recipes always work for me, and I've learned so much about Mexican cuisine from reading them. Patty is like a national treasure, wouldn't we say? Absolutely. Wouldn't we say that? Wouldn't we agree? She 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 has TV shows. She has books, and really brings. The Mexican table to the, the masses. Yes, better than anyone, really. She's she's a great ambassador for ambassador. Good for word. The culinary culture. Um, I wanted to close with this question that I ask all guests on the Taste Podcast: If you could work on a cookbook without the burden of budget or time holding you back, Daniela, what would that cookbook be? <laughs> I. Would have been thinking about this since you told me you were going to ask this question. <laughs> I was honest. a little heads up, <laughs> and I and I I have a hard time with it because I feel like I have so many ideas for books, and but right now I'm going to answer in this moment. And what I want is I have a binder that I've had for 25 years, 
that I put the re- my go-to recipes in. So I have like my go-to recipe for basic pancakes, my go-to recipe for basic crepes, my go-to recipe for yellow cake, you know, all of these recipes, my go-to recipe for roast chicken. And I, when I develop recipes, I go back to that book, to my basic solid recipe, the one I know inside and out, and then I go from there to develop a new recipe. I would love to print that book. So I would love all of my go-to recipes and for everyone to just understand that I know these work. I know these work and these are going to become your go-to recipes too. See, I wanted to say I love that idea and you know, it's it's been like keepers is a concept that's been done a lot, but what I want what I like about it is like these are your go-tos and I'd like to see like what your what are your go to like what how do you define a go to I mean you've mentioned some of the major categories but I'm sure there's some other things in there right <laughs> yeah some other dishes that we there's we... some fun stuff in there yeah I think it's a like a mix between the very very basic and then the incredibly unique and usually the unique ones aren't that far off they're not any more complex. But there's a trick to it or there's a technique that's not often done. Share one secret. (laughs) You knew I was going to ask. I I was raising my Um, eyebrows. Well, let's see. I think the only one I can think of right now is a chocolate cake recipe. And it's it's really not that much more complex than like your basic dark chocolate cake. But it has both cocoa powder and dark chocolate in it and you actually start by making a ganache and I think that that base element adds a lot adds like a really nice velvety texture Mm -hmm. to to the rest of the cake it's so different from if you added the chocolate at the end or if you add the cocoa powder powder in with the flour it wakes up the flavors of the chocolate in a really nice way and then it also bakes up into something that's much lighter than you expect it to be I love these waking up the flavors so fun (laughs) I can't wait to cook from this book. I know it's going to happen. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Thanks for your thanks so much for all of your support, Matt. I oh, appreciate it. Danielle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks again. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.